1: When I'm struggling with something in my life, it seems that hidden and unseen forces, or, or people, or resources, kind of come to the rescue when I'm feeling something like anxiety or stress or insomnia or any of the mental health issues that we have discussed here. On this, might get uncomfortable. And recently, was having a conversation with with Whitney and some other friends about the level of anxiety I've been feeling and. Lo and behold, I don't know if, if it's that my computer and my phone is listening to me. That's probably another topic we can discover and discuss. But something popped up yesterday with uh, Dr. Gabor Mate about anxiety, and, and he was discussing this really interesting in-depth perspective about anxiety coming from the traumas and pain of our childhood. And that the anxiety we feel in adulthood is a compensatory mechanism to deal with the root of anxiety that we experienced as a child but never overcame. And then, lo and behold, I get a, a meme sent to me this morning from a friend, uh, which is from Ramdas who passed away. And he said in this quote, where you are now with all your neuroses and your problems, you're sitting in just the right place. And it's so interesting because, Heather, when we discovered your work and Whitney and I were reading about what you do and how you support people... It was like, oh, okay, anxiety, sleepless nights, stress, depression, too much chatter in the head. And it was like, ding, we need to have her on. So (laughs) that's a long intro just to say we're super stoked to have this conversation with you, Heather. And And much like those other resources, it seems that you are here with us and it's just perfect timing.
0: Well, thank you. I am excited to be here, and while anxiety isn't necessarily a fun topic to talk about, it is really pertinent to most people's lives, and especially anyone's life, because we all know people who are struggling with mental health issues.
1: Yeah, and it's heartbreaking, right? Because we know in society there are so many factors that contribute to mental health struggles, and we've certainly talked a lot about that here on the show, but recently, um, uh, Whitney. A couple of days ago, you sent me an article about one in four young people, millennials and Gen Z, are experiencing like suicidal ideation. You were the one who sent that that to me, right, Whit?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I've been reading about that a lot recently, and and then we did our our recent episode. Well, we recorded it recently. Twenty five ways that anxiety kind of manifests in our lives and and keeps us distant from other people.
1: Yeah, and it's a curious thing, Heather, because it it's. We see, you know, things like depression and suicidal ideation and mental health issues really coming to the forefront, I think, via a lot of maybe celebrities or actors or athletes talking more openly about this. But certainly, you know, most recently with COVID and the quarantine and and everything we've gone through in 2020, these statistics and these studies that are coming out are are really concerning. And I guess my question is, in, in terms of anxiety and your work, you know, what was it? about your story and your history and your experience with anxiety that led you to really focus on this?
0: Well, I have, I think, an interesting background because I had high-functioning anxiety, and I was not familiar with the term, and I didn't know such a thing existed, and I didn't know that I had anxiety. Because to me, I thought anxiety looked a certain way, like a person with anxiety would, you know, look like this externally, or would say or do these sort of things. But high functioning anxiety is just that I was very high functioning in the world. I just thought that I was stressed out all the time. I just thought, oh, it's because I'm a single mom, and I have a really demanding job. And, you know, fill in the blank with all of the life things that we kind of have in American society, where we're just go, go, go. But I didn't realize that I actually had been suffering with anxiety for a very long time. And it took pretty dramatic wake up call for me in the form of a very strong autoimmune reaction where I got pretty sick for me to start addressing all of the reasons that my body started breaking down, which were actually emotional reasons. I just didn't know that at the time. And that process led me to become aware of high-functioning anxiety and how it had basically been running my life for years.
2: You know, that, that reminds me of how it seems like anxiety has been coming up so much recently in the media, on social media, in articles as the reference. I think it's becoming a hotter topic on podcasts. And one thing I'm curious about from both of your perspectives is whether you think that is it that growing awareness of anxiety is helping people recognize that they have anxiety and or do some people categorize themselves as having anxiety when it might be something else and i'm curious for you heather and also for you jason like how did you figure out what exactly was going on for you you know it, i love this concept of high functioning anxiety which is not a term i hear very often either so i'm glad you brought that up how did you figure this out? And then did you start to notice that other people that might not even be, quote, diagnosed with this yet or might not realize that they have it? Do you have any thoughts on on how there's just kind of a lot of people throwing around that term anxiety and maybe not always using it in perhaps like a, pr- a proper way, for lack of a better word? You know, like, are people using it flippantly? Like, oh, OK, I have anxiety,
0: you ask so many really relevant questions because there is a difference between stress and feeling anxious and having anxiety. And so people get those all muddled up and, and mixed up together. and oftentimes people are thinking about stress. And when I tell them I work with people who have anxiety that I'm an anxiety specialist, I've heard this multiple times. they'll say, "Well yeah, but isn't anxiety good to have?" Because they're thinking about stress and how sometimes being in a stressful situation can be motivating, right? It can light a fire under your tissue. right? It's like, it's the thing that's propelling you to get something done. And so you just really succinctly Kind of said all of the things that people are wondering and what they're confused about. So, stress is a response to an external cause, like let's say a deadline at work that's really common for adults, right? Or, oh my gosh, I have two kids and they both have to be somewhere at the same time and I can't possibly drive them both, right? Those sorts of things. And then there's feeling anxious. And then there is having anxiety, which is a perpetual chronic state that one is in and it is not something that somebody wants to have. Like, you know, like the comment I just said where someone's like, Yeah, but isn't anxiety a good thing? Anxiety is perpetual and it's not just stress and it's not feeling anxious.
1: And you you mentioned the emotional connection with, with your experience, Heather, and your you know, your story of, of working in in a corporate job and and the environment you were in, and I'd also love to hear more about you know how you how you learned that it was an anxiety. I don't know if we would term it a disorder, but you know that leading to this autoimmune condition. You know what was that approach like for you? From obviously recognizing the mind body connection, how did you unravel the layers of that? Was it going to therapy and learning about maybe some I don't know unresolved trauma or things from your childhood, as I referenced with Dr. Mate's work? Was it? Um, did you experiment at all with, um, say, maybe pharmaceutical drugs to address it, or did you go straight to like holistic remedies? You know, what? How did you break that down? Because when you when you get something like that, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, what do I do with this? I mean, almost to me, you know, it, it's very similar to when I was diagnosed with clinical depression six years ago. We, we've talked about this on the podcast, and I, I also want to kind of answer Whitney's question that she asked was that you know my perception of stress depression anxiety suicidal ideation that that was a thick sandwich that was a thick thick sandwich that i had to to go through and dissect for myself you know and so i guess i'm curious when you received that information you know what was it about What was it about that that you were like, how do I tackle this? Do I go pharmaceutical? Do I go therapy? Do I go holistic? That's a long winded question. But I also wanted to just make sure I covered it correctly.
0: Oh, I think that's a great question. And I started to unravel things. And while I was unraveling them, I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) I mean, it's in hindsight that I learned all of the things that I talk about now. But the autoimmune reaction, it most likely was an actual disorder of some sort. But I had also been prescribed and overused antibiotics over the years, which decimates your gut flora. And so I had a a huge number of things happen all at one time. I had always been like had the high functioning anxiety, even though I didn't know it. But then At a particular time in my life, I had a series of very, very serious things happen. My mother was diagnosed with cancer. My younger daughter was having some severe health issues and problems in school. And then I started to get sick. And so when that happened, it tipped my body over into having the autoimmune reaction. I had, I had like been on the cusp of it a number of times, you know, looking back, I realized that, but it was the severe stress that my body just, my nervous system just went kaplooey and it tipped me over into being sick. And so what happened is I went to some doctors to try and get help and they wanted to put me on more antibiotics. And I knew that that was part of why I was sick. And so I very quickly gave up on Western medicine. I was doing a ton of research on my own and trying to figure out how to heal the gut and you know various things like that. And I realized I cannot trust doctors. I was asking them for tests and they didn't even know what I was talking about. And so I really radically changed my diet and started taking a number of supplements and realizing that I had some mental things that were going on, like I finally started to recognize it is the simplest way to say it. So I went the holistic route. And when I started being, you know, having the open mind of recognizing that all of the things that I had been doing for so long that they weren't working anymore, that's when I started to change because it's like, you know, the subconscious stuff that had been shoved down for so long started to come up to the surface because I was ready to address it.
2: That kind of sounds like your story, Jason, when you realized that through getting some tests done that there was some. nutritional imbalances happening and supplements were really helpful for you right
1: yeah it's it was the first kind of link in exploring nutritional psychology where you know having been i guess obsessed with food and nutrition and and wellness as, as we are here on the podcast for me it was the first ever time that i was like wow okay so what i eat whether it's probiotic foods or artificial foods or or specific supplements is directly affecting my neurochemistry and as you alluded to heather you know Whitney and I talk about probiotics how much we love probiotic supplements all the time but yeah, for, when i got diagnosed 6 years ago it was it was one of those light bulb moments right of wow okay it really does depend on my nutritional intake my vitamins my minerals my omega fatty acids the probiotics and taking out some of the stimulants that were creating some neurochemical imbalances in my body. And and it's interesting, we have um, Whitney and I have a dear friend named Ariana who lives in Philadelphia, who's a psychotherapist and I had a conversation with her a few months ago. And she was even saying in her field that the nutrition and mental health connection is still sort of in an embryonic stage, that it's not something that's radically discussed in the psychotherapy field. And it's just now starting to get some momentum. So it sounds like you, you had a similar experience and like, okay, what I eat does matter for my mental health.
0: Uh, Looking back, I would say that is absolutely true. But at the time, I was just trying anything, I guess is the best way to say it. It was like I knew that I couldn't count on Western medicine. And I knew that because like I said, I was doing so much research. So I knew that I needed to start taking probiotics, which you're mentioning, I had not ever done that before. I thought that I had been eating healthy because I was comparing my diet to a lot of other people's diets that I knew, but I wasn't actually eating that healthy. But it was just very interesting in that when I started to focus on healing my body, There was this leap over into an emotional space that is sort of hard to describe that occurred for me. It was like when I was willing to look introspectively at all the things that weren't working, my body was sort of the catalyst into the emotional realm. And it was the severe illness that my mother had and what I was grappling with, with my daughter, the ways in which I was trying to control things, for example, which is very common with someone with high functioning anxiety, I couldn't control everything anymore. And so when your life is out of control, then things start to break down because the coping mechanisms that I had didn't work anymore. And I think I was so focused on healing my body. That some of those other control things that I was doing in terms of emotional control, I just didn't have the capacity for anymore. And so things started to shift for me in a lot of really unexpected ways.
2: One of the things that I know you're interested in talking about, Heather, is perfectionism and imposter syndrome. And I feel like this is a great time to bring those up because we can get into such a state of wanting to be perfect physically, mentally, and emotionally. And I have certainly been through this a lot myself. And and sometimes I feel like that really gets in the way of me figuring out what's best for me, partially because if I find myself being so focused on what other people are doing, it becomes hard for me to figure out what's best for me because I can assume that what works for somebody is going to work for me. Or I might assume that, that, oh, they did it this way, so that will work for me. And then if I don't get those results, I can feel really disappointed in myself, like, I must be doing something wrong, or why is it working for them or not for me? Has Did that show up along your journey as well? You know, I'm thinking back, and I would say I
0: was in uncharted territory, which I think in a lot of ways was actually great for somebody who had struggled with perfectionism. And just to quickly say, perfectionism, imposter syndrome, and a high functioning anxiety, or like this little trifecta, you know, I think of it as a triangle, they tend to go all together. And I think because I was stepping into experimenting with food and supplements and trial and error, I think that gave me a lot of freedom in a way that there wasn't a perfectionist way to do it because it wasn't, oh, you should do this or you should do that. I was just trying all sorts of things that I was reading about on paleo blogs and, you know, all different sources of information. And so I, again, want to just, you know, kind of roundabout go back to I was just trying lots of different things. And that is how I was able to start to have the emotional healing that I didn't know that I needed. And how you just asked that, Whitney, was interesting because no one else has ever asked that before. And I actually think that you just helped me have an insight in that following something, you know, textbook is sort of perfectionism, but I there was no textbook for me because I was just trying all sorts of different things to heal my body. And I think that gave me probably a lot of uh, freedom that I didn't even realize I needed.
2: Ah, yeah, that's true, too. And I think, yeah, it, it seems like maybe it could be one or the other for a lot of people. Some people are very comfortable experimenting and trying things out for themselves. But I feel like we're also in a time with so much information that it's easy to find solutions that worked for somebody else and then try to do them yourself. And I guess it, it just depends on your relationship with that trial and error. Because It sounds like you, Heather, are comfortable trying something and if it doesn't work, you can pivot, whereas some people may try something and it doesn't work for them and then they get stuck in that feeling of despair like, oh, I did it wrong or nothing's ever going to work. I was talking to a friend of mine the other night who's gained a significant amount of weight and she really wants to lose it to get back to what she feels is a healthy weight for her body. And she was describing that process as feeling really desperate because she's tried so much and the doctors aren't giving her answers and things aren't working. And she just like wants to find that thing that's going to work for her. And I think that can come up a lot for us too with our mental health. And Jason, actually, I feel like you've experienced that to an extent. Like there are times where you sound really empowered and like you're on the right path. And then, I mean, even actually for your body, I know you struggled with gout and trying to figure that out. It seems like you kind of go through these up and down periods too, where you're trying a lot and you just haven't found that solution. So what do you do, Jason, when you get to that point, And how do you manage that from a place of not getting into a depressive state around it all?
1: I mean, I, I, I personally have to work around the core of what we're talking about, which is a certain amount of, quote, doing it right. You know, I, I think that I have perfectionistic tendencies that manifest in terms of taking care of myself in the sense that, you know, I'm taking all the right supplements and I'm doing the right workout routine and I'm meditating every day and I'm writing my affirmations and I'm, you know, eating my organic food. And it's a really confronting thing when, when I feel like I'm checking off all the boxes, proverbially speaking, of what I ought to be doing. But moreover that, I have an expectation that by checking off all those boxes and quote, doing it right, that's going to lead to a specific outcome, right? Well, the expert or the doctor or my own research said that if I just do this, this, this in combination with this, this, and this, and this food and this modality and this routine, then my result ought to be what I expect it to be. The challenge is when all of those things get ticked and the result isn't there. And then it's like, well, crapola, what do I do now? And it's tough for me sometimes because in investing you know, weeks, months, years and a lot of money into certain things, particularly, you know, holistic remedies, it can be frustrating. You know, it's like I spent all this money and all this time and I didn't get the result I wanted, especially in terms of healing. And I suppose that I've I've just found over the years that if I can shake myself out, not shake myself out, that sounds violent and a little bit heavy handed, but if if I can allow the frustration and disappointment to move through me and let it go, then I'm willing to get back on my feet and do a new experiment. And whether that's been the depression and the suicidal ideation or the gout or some other health challenges I've had, it's been a process of you tried it, it didn't work. Okay, what's next? Okay, you're going to be a little disappointed. It's okay, try it again. Just being radically willing to experiment over and over again. I suppose that's just been my tack on it.
0: You know, I want to commend you because you said some things that I think are really important. I mean, each human is different, and our body and our chemistry and our makeup is different. And thinking back to the time that I, was sick, there were definitely times where I thought I should be getting better a lot faster.
1: Right. Right. Right? Like,
0: yeah. I and I there was I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) Like where where was the gauge? Like, oh, this needle should be over here. But yeah, when you put in so much effort and you want an outcome, it can be frustrating. And then we just have to give ourselves some grace and say, okay, I'm trying something and it's not the mainstream. You know, we've talked like medication has come up a few times in in this conversation, pharmaceuticals. I didn't consider pharmaceuticals because as I mentioned, I didn't realize that I had emotional based work that needed to be done. I thought it was just all physical. But I can say there are a number of my clients who definitely try pharmaceuticals and it doesn't work for them. And it's interesting that we're talking about, oh, I should just take this pill and then that means I'm going to feel better, right? Or if I, like Jason, you just said this whole protocol, I should feel better, but we are individual and we are unique. And so I think the willingness to recognize when something's not working and know that we do have to try something for a set amount of time. And I don't know what that is, right? Because we can't do something for a week and expect monumental change. But if you've been doing something, whatever that is pretty diligently and committed for quite a while, and you're not seeing results, then maybe it's time to like, I guess, pivot a bit. And so these are things that, you know, your listeners are really going to have to think about, but it is a willingness to stay committed to the process and know that it's a process. And that if you keep coming back, to knowing that you're trying to heal yourself, either your physical body or your mental wellness, whatever it is, that the dedication is a huge part of success.
1: How do you help people make the leap between, I guess, sort of an ingrained scientism? I've seen that term being levied around of, of you know, people that are like, okay, Western medicine's the way, pharmaceutical's the way, I'm just, I'm going to take a pill and be done with it, which I think, you know, for a large part in our in our American culture, that seems to be the mentality of of millions of Americans, right? It's just, just give me a pill and be done with it. I ain't got time to bleed. I got to move on with my day. I got stuff to do. And to make the leap, I suppose, for a person who's skeptical, right? Who, who comes in and it's like, okay, we're going to talk about what, you know, energy healing. We're going to talk about Reiki. We're going to talk about, you know, maybe some, some meditation or spirituality. What's the best approach to work with a skeptic like that? Who's like, yeah, okay. I, and this is maybe cliche, but like, my wife told me to come in and blah, blah, whatever. I'm just doing it for her. That's, that's a cliche example. But someone who might be in that kind of frame of mind, you know, what to do with a skeptic who's never been exposed to alternative medicine or energy medicine? What, what's the approach to that?
0: Well, I actually don't work with skeptics because because when most people come to me, it is because they've tried something more traditional. They have tried pharmaceuticals, as an example, and they did not feel better. Or they've been working with, let's say, a therapist for a long time and feel like they should have made more progress than they have had made with that person. And so they are usually ready for something different because they've tried other avenues. Or I have had people come into my office and they literally have a prescription in their purse that they have gotten for a pharmaceutical and they don't want to start taking it. And so they're like, "Okay, I'm just going to try something else first. And so, your question, though, is really valid. I work with people who want to work with me. And I can, this is sort of my philosophy about life is that I don't, I'm not really motivated by trying to change people's minds about things. Usually, when I talk about my own journey and my clients' successes, that is enough for people who want to try something different.
1: It's interesting because, you know, not wanting to change someone. You know, it's a very different intention, isn't it? And certainly with a lot of the work that Whitney and I do and have done and continue to do, we do get pushback from people sometimes, you know, the, you know, perhaps you experienced this too, Heather, that sometimes on social media or on the internet, you know, there's a lot of pushback for things that people aren't used to or haven't been exposed to in their lives. And I think it's really wonderful what you said, where you offer your, your gift and your service and your talent and your perspective but you're not going to be heavy-handed about it. You're not going to try and convince someone who who really isn't open energetically and and I think with our work around mindfulness and nutrition and healing and wellness, we've definitely experienced that too where people are just kind of like, nope, don't believe you. you're full of crap and it's like, okay, i'm not I'm not gonna spend the, the life force trying to convince you of something. you know and and I think that takes a lot of discernment to be like, okay, I trust that the people that are ready, to work with me will find me. And I don't have to push or cajole or convince or overpower someone to see my perspective.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there's so many people on the planet and there is someone for everyone right that can be a broad kind of way to say something but it's true there is a practitioner for everyone and there's a diet for everyone and all of these things that we have been talking about and yeah from a business owner's perspective i just really want to work with people who are motivated and ready to change their lives and this is an energetic kind of conversation but i tend to magnetize a certain type of person because they are the kind of person who wants to work with me and is ready. And and this commitment level that I just mentioned is coming up again, where people are ready to make positive change in their life and are dedicated to to trying something and getting closer to where they want to
2: be. I'm curious, too, about how the imposter syndrome plays into your work, Heather. How is it? Is this something that you personally experience, or you did experience? And is this something that you commonly see when working with clients? And how does that play a role in healing? Because when I think about the imposter syndrome, I think about business. You know, as you mentioned, like I love that you're talking about getting new clients, right? And how it seems to come to you easily, and people are attracted to you, and and that's such a beautiful thing. And I think a lot of people struggle when it with the imposter syndrome when it comes to like. Doing the things that they love in the world, but not feeling like they're good enough or, you know, trying something and then being afraid that other people are going to notice that they don't have it all figured out or that they don't deserve something, which comes up a lot on this show from a kind of a spiritual context and our relationships with managing our careers. Do you feel like the imposter syndrome comes up during the healing process from like a, a personal level? Definitely. So as I
0: mentioned, the perfectionism that we talked about and high functioning anxiety in particular and imposter syndrome do tend to go together. And I work with very high achieving women. That is my main clientele. And so these things are all wrapped up together in that when perfectionism is at play, that's when imposter syndrome is showing up. And it can be professional, but it can also be personal too, because oftentimes people have personal pursuits that they are interested in. Maybe they have a creative pursuit that they do outside of work, something artistic is something that I have heard. I had one client in particular who worked in finance, but she wanted to be a writer. So in her free time, that's what she did. But she didn't feel like she was good enough to be a writer because she didn't have a writing degree. She didn't have a background in writing. So she really dismissed herself in this passion of hers outside of work. I've also had other clients who have imposter syndrome around being a mom, is really interesting because they're comparing themselves to other moms that they know where they think, good mom, you know, I'm doing air quotes there, a good mom would do this. A good mom is supposed to like to cook dinner. A good mom should do these sorts of things. And so then they get imposter syndrome around their parenting. So someone can have imposter syndrome about anything. And we just go back to the conversation about perfectionism, so where we can see Where is that imposter syndrome coming from? It's having this idealized view of what something is or isn't supposed to be and having perfectionist tendencies that are leading us to this probably unattainable way that something is going to show up in the world.
2: Right. Yeah, that that's so interesting, the way that you describe them. Like, oh, I, I guess that shows up in life more often than I even realize, you know, especially I feel like there's a lot of pressure on parents. And what's interesting, too, is I don't know if you work with... um male clients, it sounds like the, your clients may be predominantly female, correct me if I'm wrong, but but I wonder if that comes up for men too. It's just not something that I hear people talk about as much. Like, What do men experience when it comes to being a father? Do they have the imposter syndrome too?
0: Yeah, most of my clients are women. And I have heard some men talk about imposter syndrome. It's been related to work. I have not heard them talk about it related to being a father. So maybe Jason knows some dads and can give us some input.
1: I mean, I actually do know a few younger dads that they feel like they're quote doing it wrong. They admit to me that they don't really know what they're doing. They feel I suppose lost in the woods for lack of a better term. And maybe those are just the men that are willing to be more more honest. You know, I tend to have very open Uh, sensitive, emotionally connected relationships with a lot of the the men I'm close to, which I I feel really blessed about that. But yeah, there's a few dads that I don't necessarily want to mention them by name, but they've confided in me that they often feel lost, confused, unsure what to do, that they're just kind of making it up day to day, which I think is a really honest way to communicate their their level of parenting. And I don't know that they feel like they compare themselves to other dads. That's not one th- one thing that I've heard. But I think that they're just they feel lost and they feel like they're don't, you know, not doing a good job. And for me, I think if I examine my fears around fatherhood, my fears around parenthood, it's that there's a deep seated fear that i'm going to screw them up i've actually talked to a lot of friends about this that there's just a deep fear that even if i do my best i'm somehow going to screw my childhood my child up which i don't know if that's imposter syndrome per se as much as maybe just a lack of belief in myself and my my ability to guide a child through this world but it is something that that men have confided in me that they just feel like they're not doing a good job as a dad they feel like they're bad fathers
2: it's really it's fascinating and i i Invite more people to discuss that openly because I think it's interesting how social media and the media in general will shape a lot of these conversations. But there's so much happening in people's lives that is universal. But if it's not discussed, we can often feel like we're the only ones experiencing it. And I think that's one of our big goals with this show is to talk openly about these things so that it gives permission for others to feel that sense of community and then talk about it too. Another thing on the note of the imposter syndrome, because I I know you had done a, was it a workshop around this, Heather? Or yes, a virtual workshop is what you called it. I want to make sure I got the word right. And you shared a story about being a high school librarian. And I, I love that because my first official job was in high school working in a library. So I have a fondness for librarians (laughs) and the library experience and and how much libraries actually continue to make a huge impact in my life. I now borrow books virtually through this amazing platform called Libby. And so I'm using a library in some capacity almost every single day of my life. And and so that's a little personal side note for you. But But you said that when you walked into that career, you felt so overwhelmed. And I'm curious how that story shaped the work that you're doing now and how you made that transition from working as a librarian to your work. Yeah, I have had imposter
0: syndrome two times in my life, very distinctly. And one was when I went to be a high school librarian, I had been... Uh, working at an elementary school for a couple of years. And then I went into a high school and one would think, oh, I got this. I actually was felt very confident about being a librarian. I have a master's degree in library and information science. And when I went to go work in the elementary school, I totally felt confident, but I walked into a high school and it was actually extremely different and i didn't have a support system and to make it a very short story when i walked into the actual library and the you know the teacher work week before school starts there had been a lot of changes in the high school in the physical building. And so they had moved a lot of equipment around. And when I had been given a tour of the library, they didn't show me this huge back room where basically a bunch of stuff had been shoved. And so I get my key, you know, the day that I start and I walk in and it looked like a tornado had hit in this back room. I'm not exaggerating. And I had this massive overwhelm when I opened this door to this scene. And I was like, what? is going on? what am I supposed to do with this? And I remember standing there w- wanting to cry and feeling like I don't know what I am supposed to do. I am just so overwhelmed. and I definitely would cry now, um, but I could I wouldn't even go in the bathroom and cry right then. And so I didn't know that I was struggling with imposter syndrome at that moment, this huge feeling of I don't know what I am doing. And that happened later in life as well, because you're asking like, how did I, you know, wind up doing what I am doing? I've had a really interesting career of working as working in technology in Austin, then being a school librarian, and then moving back to Austin to get back into technology. And that is when I had imposter syndrome again, I got a job through networking with somebody that I had worked with before it had been 10 years since I had worked in technology and things change really fast in technology. And I remember having this job and feeling grossly inadequate, like I did not know what I was doing. And one day I was sitting at work and it felt like I was in a movie that was my life. That's the only way I can describe it. It felt almost like an out-of-body experience. I was sitting there doing the work, but I felt like I was pretending to do the work. And like like there was a film crew around me or something. It was bizarre. And I don't know what I searched in Google, but I searched something related to how I was feeling. And this result came back for imposter syndrome. And I read it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that is me. This thing has a name. Other people feel this way. I had no idea. This is a common theme, right? Like I was struggling with a lot of things that I didn't know had names that other people felt. And so I knew that that was really holding me back in my career. So I actually hired a life coach. To help me get past the imposter syndrome. And we had some really amazing sessions that just busted through it. And speaking of imposter syndrome, because, you know, technology is predominantly masculine sort of energy and it's a male dominated industry. In Austin, there's a lot of conversation around imposter syndrome. I I still live in Austin because it's a tech town. And I love when the conversations are coming up because this is when people are realizing, hey, wait a minute, this is really common. I'm not the only one who feels this way. And it is these dialogues that we're having now and when people are talking amongst themselves that is how people can start to make a positive change in their life.
1: You may actually have an interesting influx of a lot of new clients soon, Heather. This morning was sent a website by a a colleague of mine in Brooklyn who sent a website called transplant.io and it's a ongoing, I suppose, open source hub for people talking about where they're moving to and from in the United States and why they're moving. And one of the biggest things that I noticed on here was the massive amount of people coming from San Francisco, New York City slash Brooklyn, and Los Angeles to Austin. It's an un, it's an incredible number of people that are flooding into Austin right now. And I, I guess I'm curious, it's a little bit off topic, but also on topic of with that many professionals coming from LA, SF, New York City, and coming into Austin, you know, what do you feel about in terms of how that might alter the culture of where you live and also with the work you're doing, the competition for jobs and resources and people like, I'm getting the hell out of these crazy expensive cities. And I guess that, that's sort of like a multi-part question of how does that hit you? And, and do you anticipate that maybe you'll be seeing an influx of, of clients with that many people moving there and also maybe feeling that imposter syndrome and feeling the stress of the competition to find work there after leaving their city?
0: You know, because I've lived in Austin twice and it is uh, slightly off topic, but Austin used to be a small little uh, college town, pretty funky. And it has changed a lot over the past number of years because there are so many people moving here. I think it's hard for any city that has just massive growth to maintain its, you know, quote unquote vibe. And I do think that when more people are moving in from these big cities, and like you said, San Francisco, there's a lot of extremely well known tech companies, right? And when you have new people moving into town, yes, there's new jobs coming because companies are relocating, but you're right, it really does bring up imposter syndrome because you know, well, the company's moved here, but all the other people are moving here too. And so it's the pool of applicants and the job descriptions that are written themselves make people feel like an imposter. That's something that I have heard multiple times is that people get imposter syndrome just from looking at at job postings, because a recruiter will will write it and will say, you know, I want five years of experience doing this and seven years of experiencing doing that. And then somebody looks at this job posting and thinks, oh my gosh, I'm not qualified. They're not even going to consider me. And then this is really interesting as someone that I was a participant in a workshop that I led, he got a job, but he didn't have all of the qualifications that he saw in the job listing. So when he started, he had imposter syndrome because he felt like he wasn't good enough because he wasn't what they wanted. Like they settled for him is what he felt like.
1: But he got hired. That's fascinating. So feeling like like he ought not be there in that sense of, of I got hired, but they must have made the wrong decision, like that level of imposter syndrome where you find yourself in a situation you're like, I'm not supposed to be here.
0: Yeah, he felt like, well, why did they hire me? Because I didn't have all of the qualifications they were looking for. I guess they settled for me. So he did feel like he didn't belong there. And then he felt like there was this expectation that he should know something that he didn't know and not having a growth mindset of saying, well, I know they wanted this. So these are some things I'm going to have to learn. He just felt like he started out at a deficit.
1: So fascinating. It's so interesting because I can so identify with with exactly what you're talking about, where I have found myself in situations in my life. And Whitney, I'm curious if anything comes to your mind too, in, in terms of imposter syndrome, where usually really big things, like the 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 two immediate things that come to mind, I'm sure there are many more, is when I went to culinary school 15 years ago and I remember being up in Mendocino and ready to start the first day of culinary school. And I remember looking at my my knife roll, you know, with all my chef's knives and and I was sitting in this little little cabin I was renting up in northern california f- before the first day of school and being like what the hell am i doing here i don't know i'm i'm not a chef i don't know what i'm doing like i can i can barely make pasta with marinara sauce this is crazy and then the other more recent time was when when i had my tv series where i was a chef and also thinking like this is madness like they picked why did they pick me this is crazy so i i'm curious Witt if anything comes comes to your mind in terms of like big moments where you had imposter syndrome
2: It's interesting because I don't know if I fully recognize when that Has happened to me. I think, you know, one thing that you were describing, Heather, about like when you stepped into the library and you had this overwhelming task upon you. I took on a a new social media client recently and I felt so overwhelmed when I first started working with them. And I immediately thought, oh my gosh, they're going to regret hiring me and they're not going to want to work with me and I'm not going to get this done. And you know what? Even verbalizing it, I still actually continue to feel that, like that not good enough feeling that that we've discussed in this episode, but comes up so frequently is like, am I doing a good enough job? And this like, I think I have this subtle fear in a lot of positions like that, especially when I'm working with freelance clients, because technically they could choose not to work with me at any point. And I'm curious if you experience this too, Heather. It's like I want to continue to prove my worthiness and my value to them. And that I guess is probably imposter syndrome. Like, oh, you know, I'm glad they hired me, but like that doesn't mean they're gonna to keep me around. And so I have to still show up and this wondering and worrying if I'm doing a good enough job and should I do better. And then also, sometimes when I have those thoughts, I wonder, like, maybe I don't really need to put, be putting in that much effort. Am I trying to like overcompensate when really my clients might be really happy with me and, and some people just don't verbalize it as frequently as, as I might want to hear. So does that come up with you with your clients that you have, Heather? Do you have moments where you're like feeling you need to continue to add a lot of value or, or fears around them staying clients or giving you that repeat business?
0: Oh, gosh, that's a great question. And I do want to say that what you're describing does sound like imposter syndrome, because that's another question that I get is like, that people are wondering, well, do I have it or not? I'm not sure because it can look, you know, quote, unquote, look a lot of different ways. And I guess in terms of my work, I think when I first started, you know, I left a corporate job, and I was successful. And, and I took this leap of faith, knowing that the work that I do now is really why I was put on this planet. And knowing that all of the things that happened to me were actually for a reason. So I felt like spiritually, I was supposed to be doing what I am doing. But at the beginning, I definitely felt like, wow, this is really different than the corporate work I'm doing. Am I doing this right? Are they happy? I think that I've been in business now for about two and a half years. So that sort of, uh, you know, dialogue kind of has gone from my head. But I still can see it come up in other areas of my life like the personal things that I mentioned going back to the creativity I worked with a coach and I was part of a group program and as part of that we had to do some art journaling I like to give this example and I was like oh, I don't want to do any art journaling like I'm not an artist can't we just write things you know because I'm good at that and I felt like I'm not an artist. I don't know what I'm doing. Why? Why does she have us doing this exercise? And it was really powerful because I just stuck with it because I, you know, paid for the program. And I was like, well, I'm gonna do this (laughs) because I paid for it. And that actually got me through a big block that I had around. I'm not creative right? That was what I was telling myself in my head. And that was a form of imposter syndrome. And we all are creative, we're just creative in our own ways, because I was comparing my output to somebody else's output. So I think these are areas that people can look at in their lives, because imposter syndrome, as we've mentioned, can show up as a parent, it can show up at work, it can show up in some sort of pursuit exercise. I think this comes up for, for people a lot when they are exercising, they don't want to go to a class, Because there's other people who are more advanced in the class and they think, well, I don't want to go because I don't know what I'm doing because they're looking at somebody who's, let's say, been practicing yoga for 20 years, right? So they're going to look very different than that person who's been practicing for 20 years.
2: For sure. And that's another, I mean, I think another, I don't know if it's the exact same thing, but it, it goes hand in hand with the imposter syndrome is that comparison trap and feeling like maybe the comparison trap actually could lead to the imposter syndrome. I'm not sure which would come first, Heather, maybe maybe you have a perspective on that. But But just how much we f- think that we're not as good in comparison to other people and that can lead us to feel like everyone else is better. And so we're the ones that are imposters. But what Jason and I have found, especially in our work in social media and, and as content creators and uh, people on camera and all of that that we've done for, for all these years, it's like most people that we meet in our field have the exact same feelings. Like We kind of all collectively compare ourselves to one another and we maybe all collectively feel like imposters and that somebody is always doing a better job than us. Even some of the most successful people I know that you would think just have it all figured out feel that way to some capacity. And I think what's helped me realize is, is if I would feel that regardless of whatever external successes I received, then I might as well just be happy where I am right now because that external success is not going to change that inner state, and thus maybe it's not as necessary for me to get there. And I think if I can stay conscious of that that helps me move through the comparison trap. I think the same thing goes with our bodies physically, Heather. I mean, I've struggled with my weight and had disordered eating and and constantly am and trying to be very mindful of that so that I don't fall into the downward spiral. And I've had those moments that you're describing of, of being afraid to go to the gym or, or worried about what I'm wearing. And even now, during COVID, I take online classes and sometimes I'm like not comfortable being on camera. You know, it's optional, luckily, with these virtual classes I take. But for my live classes, they like to have the camera on so the teacher can make some adjustments for me in my yoga classes. But sometimes I'm like, oh, is my yoga teacher judging my body or the way that I'm doing these postures or other people watching me? And I've been doing yoga for over 10 years. So to just remind myself, like I've been having those feelings from the very beginning and they're probably either never going to go away or maybe the only way that I, they can dissipate is for me to just start to let them go as opposed to thinking that I need to change in order for them to go away. I don't have to change my body. It's more that I need to shift my, uh, my outlook or perspective on it all. Yeah, I want
0: to comment on something that you just said, because I think this is a really handy tip for people. The dialogue in the head, if we do work, most likely will lessen, but it may still always be there because we're growing and we are put in new and different situations, right? So there's always going to be some different external stimulus that is causing us to react a certain way. But the first key is to notice that we're having the thoughts, which all of us have described times when we're noticing the thought, but I like to tell people to name that thought, like personify it. Because when you can do that, it externalizes it. And then when that voice comes in, you can be like, uh, let's say you name it Dorothy, you can be like, Dorothy, you're back. Still talking to me. (laughs) Like, Oh, yeah, you just Yep, I hear you. Thanks so much for your input. And then thank it. And then go about your business.
1: This is so interesting for so many reasons because I I <laughs> the voice in our head can be so cunning, you know? In the sense that going back to I suppose the comparison trap, imposter syndrome, the things that we're focusing on is I'll have a conversation with with this per- I haven't named this other voice in my head heather, and it's actually interesting. I feel like I ought to now just to give it more of a, a anthropomorphic persona that I can embody in a certain way, but it's like, you know, I'll come up to a work situation. It's usually it's usually creativity or or for me, you know, I've noticed imposter syndrome and the comparison trap really only not only, but it typically shows up with things that I'm deeply invested in. Like as an example, for me, I've, I've been playing music and singing for 20 years and in, in and out of so many bands and have recorded music, but I still have blocks around it because it's so important to me and my standards of what I think good music is are so high that I'll stop myself, you know, and that voice will be like, oh, you, you know, you can't write a good song. And I'm like, yeah, but the last song we wrote was pretty good yeah, but you can't do it again. It's like, <laughs> it's like I already wrote a song that I liked that I thought was pretty good. But that voice will be like, yeah, but you can't duplicate it. That was a one-time thing only. So I, I think this, this conversation with our inner voices is, is such an interesting thing. And as we get close to wrapping up here in the next few minutes, I, I did want to bring back around a question in relation to... Energy healing, energy work, Reiki, mindfulness, and, and the things that you facilitate, Heather, you know, what's the intersection of these kind of energy healing and energy work modalities and these things like imposter syndrome, not believing in ourselves, working on some of maybe these deep, you know, inner traumas that are preventing us from moving forward? What's the intersection and how does, you know, how does energy healing and Reiki and, and mindfulness support that, support that process?
0: Yeah, that's such a great question. So I would say the intersection is that there generally is a root cause. I think, Whitney, you may have said this all the way back at the beginning. Some there's generally, you know, childhood sort of wounds or traumas, even from adolescence, things that have happened in our lives. And we may not see them as traumas. They're just things that occurred but we basically store in bed and sort of house past experiences within our energy system and our energy body and that's probably a whole you know podcast on its own but those past experiences really dictate our current reality And so quite often people have no idea that why they're stuck in a loop, a thought loop or a behavior pattern. It's because of something in their past that's sort of running the show. I kind of use the analogy, it's like a little computer program and it overrides what you're trying to do. So even though you may try really hard to do something or try really hard not to do something, when you keep getting stuck in the same pattern over and over, it's because the past experience is overriding and dictating your reality. And so energy work is an amazing way to basically remove those blocks, remove those past experiences so that you can be liberated and be the person that you are really truly without like layers of grime on top of you.
1: It just sounds to me like it's a combination of, of you know, getting to the root cause of, of some of these things that might somatically be stored in our, in our bodies and our beings. You know, one of the things that's been helpful for me over the years is in working with my therapist, Gary, here in Los Angeles, he very much is a somatic practitioner in the sense that we don't just address some of the issues that I have on a cerebral or psychological level, but we get into, oh, wow, when that happened when I was three years old or that happened when I was five or that thing happened with my dad, I really internalize that you know in, in my gut. It's like we go back to the probiotic thing, but to maybe go full circle here and with gut health one of the biggest things I've identified through my own experience with energy work and psychotherapy and and different healing modalities has been a lot of my gut issues in life have been a result of a lot of the trauma that I stored in my gut as a child. And that was a huge light bulb for me. That was like, oh my God, it's not the sole reason, but it was definitely a light bulb moment of, oh my God, I've had I've had stomach and gut issues and digestive issues my whole life. And that's where a lot of this pain and trauma, I just, I stored it there. And that was that was a quantum jump for me in realizing that there were different ways I could approach my healing process. And I just think it's so wonderful what you're facilitating for people and and hopefully opening their eyes, Heather, to new ways that they can heal themselves that maybe they hadn't previously considered.
0: Well, thank you for that. Yeah. I, I love that you are working with a therapist who's doing some of that body-based work. That's some of the Uh, Tools and techniques I bring in as well. And I think we've just, you know, hit on so many amazing points in this conversation. And that, you know, going back to what works for one person shouldn't necessarily be the standard to compare yourself by. And you've had, it sounds like a really interesting journey, Jason. And so have I, and Whitney, you probably have too. And so just knowing that whoever is listening, if you really are feeling like your path is one way, just let it be your way and that your healing, whatever it is, your body, your emotional state, it, it doesn't have to look like anything else that anyone has done because it's really your journey and you're a unique person. This
1: is such a wonderful summary, Heather. It reminds me of one of our oft-mentioned resources here on the podcast, which is Joseph Campbell. And he always talks about how if you are going into the dark forest on your personal adventure and there's a path already laid out, it's not your path. That your path is a path unlike anyone else's. It's a path that hasn't been laid yet. It's a path that is unknown. And that's where the courage comes in, in walking your own path. So- for you, dear listener, if you are interested in learning more about Heather and her incredible Reiki, her energy healing work, her workshops, her meditations, all her great services, we will link to her website, which is theenergysynergist.com. We'll link to her website, all of her social media handles at our website, which is wellevator.com. It's spelled dot rcom you can dig more into Heather's incredible work and her services, whether you live in Austin, Texas, or I'm sure you also offer offer probably Skype or Zoom services. Is that correct, Heather, as well?
0: Yes, I work with people from all over the country.
1: Awesome. Excellent. So all the goodies for Heather will be there in the show notes, including all of the resources and books and things that we mentioned during this episode for you to continue your healing journey and your education in the school of life here on planet Earth. So until the next time, we are so grateful for you being here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Whitney was awesome as usual. And Heather, thanks for sharing more of your story and, and going deep and just, you know, explaining to us your approach for for being of service to the, the world. We just so appreciate your presence here.
0: You're welcome. And thank you for having me. I loved it.